this morning's reading, Mark chapter 15, verses 22 through 39. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And, they crucified, and with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was God's son. Thanks, Patrick. Um, I was listening back on some of the first sermons from this series on the Upside Down Kingdom uh, when we started journeying through Mark, and I was confused because in the recordings, Ben seemed to be yelling, um, and there was lots of ambient background noise, and I realized that we've been on this journey since we were out in the tents, <laughs> which was years ago at this point. Um, I can't believe we've been journeying in Mark for so long. Uh, today would be a nice day to be in the tents, but that's okay. Um, the benefit of slowly walking through a book of the Bible is that it gives us time to closely consider each piece and see how the story unfolds. Um, the downside, though, is that sometimes as we comb through the details, we can lose sight of the broad picture of the larger narrative arc. Um, so as we return to the crucifixion account again today, um, it might be helpful to recap some of where we've been. So if you've been on this journey, hopefully much of this uh, should sound familiar. Uh, Mark's gospel follows the public ministry of Jesus as he announces and inaugurates the kingdom of God, which is nothing short of heaven reaching down to earth, uh, turning our world on its head and reversing our taken-for-granted structures and systems. Uh, Mark announces an upside-down kingdom. Um, this means that the kingdom is uh, confusing, it's disorienting, and it, and it often plays in reversals. Um, the marginalized are given the head seat at the table while the rich go away hungry. The poor and humble and meek are elevated while the religious and economically powerful and privileged are denounced. Mark's good news, Mark's gospel, is that this kingdom is coming to bear on creation in 
and through the person of Jesus. Mark's gospel is not about escaping to an otherworldly oasis after we die. It's about heaven coming down to earth and the union of the two, the healing, the sozo, the salvation that this brings to us today. And Mark's account of Jesus' death on the cross reveals this gospel in a uniquely powerful way. So if you've listened to Ben's sermon from two weeks back on this same passage, um, the passage should be familiar. Uh, And Ben invited us in, in that sermon a few weeks back to encounter the cross personally through the eyes of those who witnessed it firsthand. Today we'll be exploring the cross again, but from a different angle. Um, I'm reminded of of Austin's prayer from two weeks ago. Help me understand the significance of this. Um, God, help us to continue to understand the significance of your work among us. Um, And and we need help because the cross is in many ways a mystery. Um, There is so much that it reveals, but also so much that it leaves us wondering about. Um, And there are many ways that the cross intersects with the whole narrative that the Bible tells. It's like a gem with many facets. Each face refracts and reveals light distinctly and uniquely, and together they create a whole that tells us so much more than one face alone might. Even between the four Gospels, each Gospel author presents the cross in a distinct way to say something distinct, unique about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. Mark's Gospel is in some ways the pinnacle of mystery and disorientation. Mark's crucifixion account, like Mark's whole Gospel, is is sparse. It's to the point, uh, minimal. We're given the bare minimum in this account of what happens. So we're, we're told Jesus is led to Golgotha, He's crucified. His clothes are gambled over. There's the inscription, King of the Jews. Um, Everything in Mark's account is also in Matthew's. And and Matthew adds a lot of detail uh, to his account. Um, In Mark's account, we have no dialogue between Jesus and the women on his way to the cross or between Jesus and the other men who were crucified with him. Uh, Those both happen in in Luke. Uh, We're not given the conversation between Jesus, John, and Mary, like we're given in John. Jesus does not say it is finished, like he says in John. He does not say, into your hands I commit my spirits, like he does in Luke. He does not even yield up his spirit, like Matthew says. No, in Mark's account, Jesus simply cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utters a loud cry and breathes his last. Mark offers us no comfort, no narrative cushion to this. It's jarring. And much like the ending in Mark's gospel, as we'll find later, uh, we're left wondering what's happened. Um, There are two supernatural events that happen in Mark's account, and these are all the more significant because of how sparse this account is. We're told two things. One, that darkness covers over the land for three hours. And we're also told that the curtain of the temple is torn in half from top to bottom. And this morning we're going to focus on the temple curtain tearing um, because Jesus' death is intimately connected to the function of the temple. In fact, we might even say that we can't understand Jesus' death without understanding how it relates to the temple. 
So as a reminder, the temple is the structure in which God dwells. It's a stationary version of the tabernacle, um, which is a movable tent complex, also where God dwells, um, as God accompanies Israel through the wilderness as they settle into their promised land after liberation from oppression in Egypt. The temple, like the tabernacle before it, contains multiple curtains. And these curtains are used to hedge in and contain God because God is dangerous. Let me say it again. The curtain, the curtains in the temple and tabernacle, like the larger temple and tabernacle system, serve a purpose. They contain God, separating God from creation outside the tabernacle because God is dangerous. Let's look at Exodus 33. We're going to be jumping around a bit, so if you want to follow along in your own text, then just ready your fingers. If not, then don't worry, I will, I will read them. Let's look at Exodus 33. Um, Moses and God are meeting on Mount Sinai. Moses has asked God to continue to journey with Israel despite Israel's errors. This is right after the golden calf incident. Um, and God agrees to continue to journey with them. In response, we read in verse 18, Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. The God of the Bible, the God who Jesus reveals to us is dangerous. And the text doesn't mean this in a metaphorical kind of way. God is literally dangerous in creation. Um, the language is used frequently in the Old Testament. It shows up all over the place. Um, and it appears that this was common knowledge for Israel. If we go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 19, we find the whole nation of Israel standing at the base of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and they're terrified of God's power. So they tell Moses, you speak to us and, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, or we will die. Passages like this, and there are many, um, these fall into the category of texts that we do not read literally enough. We have a tendency as readers who are over 2,000 years removed from the text, removed from the culture and the language that it emerged in, who in our own culture are far more preoccupied with the individual, the internal, the spiritual. Um, we, we have a tendency to metaphorize and spiritualize texts like this. They aren't metaphors. Um, they're not moralistic lessons for us. They're meant to be taken literally. And in light of this real, literal danger, we find that the laws and rules that God gives Israel are incredibly practical. Uh, they are to keep the people safe. Leviticus 18.4 is just, is just one of many examples. We read that God instructs the people, my ordinances you shall observe, and my statutes you shall keep following them. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes, and my ordinances. By doing so, one shall live. I am the Lord. 
This is language that Israel took literally, and we too should read it as literal. This is not, follow me and be a moral person so you can live your best and most purpose-driven life so that I will bless you with wealth and prosperity so that you will really live. Um, No, these rules are given that the people might be safe with God and survive the incredible danger that is being in close proximity to God. In fact, the content of the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, rests on the premise that holiness is dangerous physically to humanity, that God is dangerous physically to humanity. Uh, This premise is actually based on the science and cosmology that ancient Israel had. Uh, This science and cosmology were actually shared by many other ancient Near East cultures. Um, This science understood God to be defined by holiness, and holiness is contrasted to commonness, not holiness. Holiness in this understanding is a category of state. It's a physical property. It's not a moral property. God and the things of God are holy. And the world, the things that are not God, are common. And these states just can't mix. We're not given the full scientific rationale for this worldview. It's simply an assumption that the text gives us. So when God offers to journey with Israel to physically go with them in the pillar of fire and smoke through the desert, this is radical and exciting and so, so dangerous. Because holy and common are distinct chemical states. They can't mix. Think Alka-Seltzer in a soda bottle. It just doesn't go well when they're together. Um, not compatible. The most common image for God used in these passages is consuming fire from heaven. Pure energy, pure power, dangerous. So for God to be able to physically be with Israel, to accompany them safely on this journey, steps need to be taken to protect Israel from God, to make sure people literally don't die. And this is why God gives Israel the tabernacle. Uh, Josh, could you show that first slide I have? The tabernacle. Yes, with a laser pointer. Okay. So God gives Moses meticulous, detailed instructions to build the tabernacle as God's place of dwelling, where God lives among Israel. And you can see here that the tabernacle consists of a series of nesting box structures. See, we have an inner holy of holies inside a larger inner tent. And here's the larger tabernacle system. It's like a nesting doll set, boxes within boxes. Um, And these nesting boxes are meant to contain holiness. Each structure closer to the center is holier than the previous one. The center of the tabernacle, the holy of holies, if it wasn't clear enough what the purpose is, uh, is where God resides on the mercy seat of the ark. And the wings of the cherubim cover over this seat. So this would be the ark with the wings of the cherubim in the holy of holies, yeah? Okay. And then there's a a curtain that obscures the ark from view inside the holy of holies, And then there's a holy altar of incense that produces smoke that rises in front of the curtain, further shielding the priests from direct encounter with holiness. 
right? God says, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. The closer we get to holiness, the closer we get to direct encounter with God, the more steps need to be taken to protect, to shield. Different people are allowed into various levels of the tabernacle compounds depending on their protection from holiness. Protection from holiness came through insulation with sanctifying objects. Uh, Sanctification is just a process of turning something from common into holy. So sanctifying objects make common things holy. Sanctifying objects could include holy clothes, holy oil, and blood. To encounter holiness without proper protection would be lethal. God is explicit about this. Here's just one example. Exodus 31, verses 17 through 21. God says, You shall make a bronze basin with a bronze stand for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. With the water, Aaron and his sons, the priests, shall wash their hands and feet when they go into the tent of meeting or near the altar to minister to make an offering by fire. They shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and feet so that they may not die. God repeats it twice explicitly. This is the reason. Do this so you don't die. Josh, if you could go to the next slide. So this slide is just more of a schematic, right? It's less of an artistic depiction. But we can see that the tabernacle is given as a nesting box set to basically quarantine holiness. We're tired of that word, but it fits. See, we have these, and here are the curtains. Those are the purple lines. We have box and box and box and box, quarantining holiness to protect the people of Uh, to protect the people from God, so that God's presence may be among the people in a way that is safe. So we've got our nesting box set to produce separation. Within that, the Levitical system, the cleansing, the oil, the blood, the water, sacrifices, priestly vestments, that whole system that we read about in Exodus and Leviticus, uh, these are protocols by which Israel can engage the tabernacle and encounter God. The tabernacle structure and system creates an interface, a meeting point between what is holy and what is not holy. Because holiness is dangerous. God is dangerous. And this has nothing to do with sin as we think about it today. This uh, has nothing to do with volitional sin, personal guilt, or issues of morality like we might think of when we use the word sin commonly today. The language of sin used in these passages refers to unintentional accidents. The text has a way of dealing with intentional sin. It's completely different from the system. The system is not pertaining to that. Holiness and commonness, holiness and commonness are not moral categories. They're value-neutral states of being. Regular everyday life is common. God is holy. And this is hard work, but this, this is sort of a mental process that we have to undergo to undo the interpretation that we have added, the extra layer that we have added to these texts that don't actually come from the texts themselves. God is not dangerous because God is holy in the sense that God is wrathful and angry and punishing. Now, God is dangerous in the same way that fire is dangerous to dry wheat. 
The wheat isn't sinful, and the fire isn't angry. The fire simply consumes the wheat because that is its nature. The tabernacle contains God so God can be with humans, and humans can be safe. The tabernacle is a gift from God. It's a grace. And the tabernacle as a safe container becomes a safe interface through the sanctifying power of blood. Blood is the most valuable substance on earth within the view that um, the Pentateuch gives us. Because blood protects and insulates what is common and allows it to come into contact with what is holy. Blood is used as a covering. And the Hebrew word for covering is kaper. In our Bibles, it's translated as atonement. Atonement is translated literally from the Hebrew word kaper, which means to cover, to insulate, to protect from holiness that is inherently dangerous to that which is not holy. As one example of the atoning and covering function of blood, we can turn to Exodus 29. Josh, if you want to bring up that list. Okay, perfect. In Exodus 29, God instructs people, uh, God instructs Moses and in how to make people and objects holy. So I'll read parts of verses 10 through 21. It's a longer passage, so we'll, we'll cover through parts in Exodus 29. God says, You shall slaughter the bull before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest you shall pour out at the base of the altar. You shall take a ram and slaughter it and take its blood and dash it against all sides of the altar. You shall take the other ram and slaughter it and take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the lobes of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet and dash the rest of the blood against all sides of the altar. Then you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on his vestments and on his sons and on his sons' vestments. Then he and his vestments shall be holy as well as his sons and his sons' vestments. In verse 37, we read, Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar, and the altar will be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. What's happening here? Blood atones, it covers, it makes people and objects holy. Atonement is about covering, making holy, preparing for encounter. Atonement from the Hebrew kaper does not mean wrath, appeasement, or paying the price for guilt or moral wrongdoing. We are told that the blood atones objects, the altar, clothing. The altar and clothing didn't sin. They're just common objects that through covering of blood become holy and can encounter holiness safely. We're told that the altar can even spread holiness, that there's a contagiousness to holiness. Which begs the question, right? Why blood? Why all of this talk of blood in the Levitical system? 
We're told why. Uh, Go to Leviticus 17, verse 11. God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. The reason for blood's usefulness is also chemical, also scientific. The life is in the blood, right? If we go back to Genesis chapter two, verse seven, we're told the Lord formed the Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into its nostrils the breath of life and the Adam became a living being. God gives creatures the breath of life and this life is carried in the blood, The ancient Israelites understood this. They understood that when breath was cut off from a living thing, life left it. It died. Similarly, they understood that when a living thing lost too much blood, life left it. It died. Blood carried the breath of life in it. Blood becomes miraculous in this sense because blood carries divinely given life in the physical common bodies of common creatures. Blood itself is an interface of the holy and the common. It's it's a miracle, chemically, in this view. So to some, just to, just as recap in case you like got lost along the way because that was a lot. Um, To some, holiness is dangerous. God is dangerous. So for God to exist with humanity, precautions must be taken. And the tabernacle is God's gift to facilitate this. And blood as divine life provides the insulation, the covering for common humans and objects to become holy, to interface with the divine blood atones. But what does this have to do with Jesus, right? We're in Mark right now. Um, before we return to Mark, I just, I can't help myself. John 1, 14 and 18. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. The tabernacle and the temple as the stationary structure that replaces it, uh, this is God's gift to us to facilitate meeting communion. And Jesus is the new tabernacle. But Jesus is a tabernacle of a different nature. Jesus is a tabernacle of flesh, a full mixture of God and humanity. Jesus combines in his very body holiness and commonness. They can touch in him. And as Jesus, this new tabernacle, this new mixture moves through creation, he spreads holiness. Jesus touches people and heals disease. He brings the dead to life. And often the first place these healed people go is the temple. They're atoned, they're covered. They can encounter holiness now. And so we see that this same spreading of holiness, this same insulation, the same covering, the same atoning, this is what is happening on the cross. Because when Jesus' blood is poured out on the cross, 
and it drips down to land on the earth. The ground is made holy. What is common has been covered, insulated, sanctified, made holy. Creation is made holy. It's atoned, it's covered with Jesus' holiness. And so we see that the temple curtain tears from top to bottom because all creation is now God's dwelling place. There is no need for these boxes of protection that were so important and necessary. God can take up residence in us, in our bodies, in all creation, and we can become little Christs as we're knit into Christ. Holiness has invaded all creation as the world is covered by Jesus' blood. The universe is atoned. Who is Jesus? That we might understand the significance of his identity of the cross. Mark's Jesus is mysterious. He's the son of God, the very same God who is so dangerous that none might see them and live. But Jesus is also the tabernacle. He's a grace given that we can encounter God. Jesus is also the blood poured out that the whole world, that all creation, that all flesh becomes holy, becomes the tabernacle. Jesus is and brings God among us. So we've taken a dive into scripture this morning in a way that some of you Bible nerds might be very excited about. Um, others of you might be asking, what is the point? Um, there are many points. Um, I'm just going to pick a few for us to, to ponder. Maybe, maybe this leads to your own pondering, which is wonderful. Um, first, first wondering, do we see creation, the people around us, our neighbors, our family, our friends, strangers, do we see everyone around us is already covered by the blood of Jesus, made holy? Do we expect to see heaven breaking into earth all around us, turning life upside down because all creation is God's dwelling place in a very real and powerful way? I'll admit it's hard sometimes with the news cycle, with things happening in our world. Um, sometimes I don't see it. I struggle to believe that this is hallowed ground already. But the gospel tells me that it's true, even on days when I struggle. Lord, help our unbelief. There's another practical fruit of this heady wandering. I wonder if considering Jesus' death in conjunction with his life, with his ministry, with his resurrection, helps us consider atonement, what that word means, differently. If Jesus is tabernacling and atoning and spreading holiness throughout his whole life, as well as his death and resurrection, perhaps this opens space for us to talk about the cross as good news without resorting to the story that God was angry because we were guilty and blood needed to be shed as punishment for guilt and that blood should have been ours, but Jesus stepped in the way and God exhausted God's punishment on Jesus and the wrath of God was satisfied. Like that story. I wonder if this opens us space to use the word atonement differently. Because the story of shed blood is punishment and wrath appeasement is not the story of the cross that Mark is telling. It's also not how blood works in the tabernacle system. 
Can we see that the cross is accomplishing the same covering and the same atonement as Jesus' whole life, that his life, death, and resurrection are all a unified whole? They all matter. And the cross accomplishes what his whole life accomplishes just on a cosmic scale. It's significant, but integrated. One final very important note for us today. Um, Jesus is a continuation of the grace of the tabernacle and temple system. And too often, Christians are guilty of caricaturing the Jewish religion as legalistic, as exclusive, and as about empty ritual. Uh, And we say, you know, Jesus comes in and does away with this and preaches about grace. Uh, This misrepresentation of the Jewish system is in part responsible for an anti-Semitism that lingers in our theology and plagues much of our history. Um, God gave the tabernacle as a gift. Jesus extends that gift, and love has been at the heart of that gift the whole way through. That love compelled God to make a way to be among us, and that love compelled the blood of Christ to atone the world. And that's good news.